Our Father, it is with hearts of gratitude and hearts of humility that we bow before you and we understand, Father, that this time that's been set aside today and our coming together here today is different than the rest of our week and that we're able to come before the holy God with fellow believers for the primary purpose of somehow, some way, giving honor and glory to your name. And so I pray that this would not just be another day, another moment, another sermon, but that we would truly have hearts opened, minds opened, to receive your word in a way maybe that we haven't received it in a while. And I pray that if there's someone here that is far from you, Lord, that you would draw them near. If there's someone here that feels weak in certain areas of their lives, Father, I pray that today you would show them that when we are weak, you are strong. If there's someone here today needing comfort or encouragement, Father, I pray that your word would bring that to them. And Father, if there's someone here that does not know you, I pray you would do a saving work, even in this sermon today. We thank you for the time we've had. We pray that you would bless the remaining time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Find in the Word of God, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, as we continue to work through the gospel according to John, and we're going to examine today a familiar story, uh, probably to most of us, but a very good story, a very good help, I think, and we're going to see some, some ways it's going to help us and apply to us. But before we dive into this text, I found this so interesting, and I've known this before, but I really spent time this week diving, uh, doing a deep dive into this. Um, and I want to just give you a, a few words of introduction here. In some of your Bibles, you might notice that this text is in brackets, or you might notice a little footnote there by John chapter 8. And, and the reason those footnotes are in there is because the earliest manuscripts that we have of Scripture, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage in it. A lot of the early church fathers would write commentaries on Scripture, and as they would go through John, they would stop at chapter 7, verse 52, and they would pick back up at chapter 8, verse 12. And it wasn't until, as best I can find, it wasn't until the 5th century that we started to see this text begin to circulate in some biblical uh, texts. And not only that, it was, it was also not only here, some people put it later in John, other people put it in the book of Luke. And so this text has been much debated because it does not appear in the earliest uh, manuscripts. Um, and there's other reasons as well, I won't go into all those tonight. If you want to hear more about that, come Wednesday night at 6.30 for small groups and we'll discuss some more details about 
this text. But I will say this, um, I believe that God has sovereignly ordained his word for us and preserved his word for us that we might know it and study it. And I do believe this, that this story happened and that it deserves to be here in the word. Um, And so we're going to treat it as as such. But I wanted to share that with you because I found that interesting. Um, And if you have a Bible with brackets, you might be wondering why. So we're going to read the story um, beginning in chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to go through 8, verse 11. So if you're in chapter 7, verse 53, say word. And every man went unto his own house. And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, Let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So as we come to this text today, we're reminded of our previous study, which is in John 7, that Jesus is there at the temple, and he's teaching. And the thing we've talked about for weeks now are these Pharisees, right? These religious leaders. The word Pharisee means separated ones. They were this influential religious sect in Judaism, and they, they knew it all, and they wanted to make sure everybody, everyone, else, everyone else knew they knew it all. And they hated Jesus. They had tried to get Jesus arrested in chapter 7. That didn't work out for them. And you can just tell these Pharisees are behind the scenes scheming and plotting to get Jesus. How can we get him? And so they come up with a new plan. And so as Jesus is here, sitting down, Teaching in the temple, which I find this interesting, by the way. And there, in these days, a lot of times the teacher would sit and the listeners would stand. We should try that one Sunday. You want to try? You're like, no, no. But nobody would fall asleep in the sermon if you're standing, probably. But anyway, that's how they would do it. So Jesus is sitting there, sitting there teaching, and imagine this crowd of people around Jesus listening to him teach because you know he's an authoritative teacher, a master teacher. They're listening to him teach. And all of a sudden, these Pharisees and some scribes, which were these theologians, these writers, they came up to Jesus and they brought, as we read in the text, this woman there. If you go back and look with me in verse 8, it says they take, I'm sorry, verse 3, they took this woman who was caught in adultery and they set her in his midst. 
A couple of interesting things about this text to me is that in verse 3 there, they, they brought this woman caught in the act of adultery. And so here's my question. If she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? You ever thought about that question? Where's the man? Is it just women who are supposed to be condemned for adultery? Or is adultery bad for everybody? <laughs> and so I went to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 22. Listen to Deuteronomy 22. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge evil from Israel. Many have speculated about this man, who it might be. I don't think we know who the man is. But the law would call for the man and the woman to both come before condemnation. But yet, again, they're scheming, right? They're scheming. They just bring this woman. They drop him before Jesus. Drop her before Jesus. Look at verse 4. And they say she's caught in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Now, continue listening. I read Deuteronomy 22, 22. Continue to listen. It says, if there is a betrothed lady and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both of them out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, as you read Deuteronomy, or those, some of those Old Testament passages, you're like, this seems pretty wild in our culture, right? To say we would take someone who committed adultery or sin like that and purge evil from our midst or stone them with stones, that seems crazy, right? Why, my first thought when I read this, some of y'all might get this reference, I said, why so serious? Why so serious? Why, why is the Old Testament so serious? And why is the Old Testament so bloody with all these animal sacrifices? Why, is, why must death be a penalty for a sin? And here's why. Because God takes sin extremely serious. Right? Most of us don't like to read the book of Leviticus necessarily. Why, why are all these rules and all these different things? It points to the fact that God is holy and demands things to be done in a certain way. And you compare the holiness of God and how God views sin with how we view sin. And isn't there a stark difference? And I, I'm not talking about us as a church, I just mean our whole culture, right? Our culture is such, and our nation is such, that we have an entire month set aside to celebrate sin we don't just accept it now we have a holiday for it for sin our month our country is such that even though the supreme court made that decision on roe versus wade recently and i know that's a touchy touchy subject but i watch some of these protests and i see people who are out there like celebrating the death of unborn babies isn't that insane that's the way our country has reached this point of of and it's been that way for a long time, by the way, of accepting sinful things. And, and, and again, I just use those examples to show you that we are depraved as a people, but regardless of how I view sin or how you view sin or how our country views sin, regardless of how we treat sin, God has always viewed sin the same way, in that it is, a, it is an infinite offense against His holiness. You ever thought it was harsh in the Garden of Eden 
when all they did was eat of the fruit, right? But not just that, they disobeyed God's word, right? Why would God kick them out of this beautiful place? Because he is serious about sin and he had to show it. Why would they have to kill these animals for sacrifice? God is serious about sin and he showed it. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I recommend a little book. And he says this, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to any standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is is incapable of being other than he is. Because he is holy, everything about him is must be thought of as holy. Why so serious in the Old Testament? Why are they bringing up this point about stoning someone for sin? God is holy and sin leads to death. The blood sacrifices, the things God put in place in the Old Testament, many of which, of course, we don't currently still do, were meant to be a picture of the gravity of sin and the sinfulness of sin. And I hope you see that because That's going to be the backdrop in which we're about to see in a moment the very mercy of Christ poured out. We can't truly understand grace, can we, unless we understand sin. We're going to see that in a minute. Verse 6. So why did they do this? Why did they bring her before Jesus to to accuse her? Was it just this woman? Were they just trying to get this woman? No. Verse 6 says this. They did this to tempt Christ. They did it to trap him that they might accuse him. They are scheming and plotting, and they want to get Jesus in trouble. And let me explain to you why. What would happen if Jesus said, you know what, guys? I see the lady. I I understand she's committed adultery. I say you must not stone her. What if Jesus just come out and said that? Don't stone her. What, What would he be saying? He would be saying this. We don't have to listen to the law of Moses, right? And as soon as Jesus said, don't do that, don't listen to Deuteronomy, don't do it, they could run to the people and say, see, he's against God. He's claiming to be God, but no, he's against the very word of God, the words of Moses, and they could accuse him. So what if Jesus would have said this? No, don't stone her, which some of us might say, I wish he would have said that. No, don't stone her. Why didn't he do that? Well, did you know that the Jewish people were under Roman rule at this time, and it was Roman law that the Jewish people could not condemn anyone to death? So are you reminded when Jesus was on trial, those Pharisees, those high priests, those Jewish people couldn't just do it. Remember they took Jesus before Pontius Pilate? They had to get the right go-ahead before they were to crucify him. Same kind of thing. So here's the point. Whatever he said here, it was a trap. And so they were trying to get him, and of course Jesus... I like how it says he kneels down and writes in the ground, and we don't know what he wrote. Some people believe he wrote the names of their sins. Some people believe he wrote some of the Ten Commandments or some Old Testament scripture. I read one author, he said he thinks he was stooping down just to doodle as he thought about how he's going to handle the situation. We don't know, but I think it's probably more serious than doodling. But, but he took his time, knowing, I think, knowing, right, they're, kind of, they're trying to accuse him and trap him. He took his time. Then he says these words in verse 7. A very familiar phrase that we've heard many, many times. He that is without sin, let him first cast 
a stone. What a statement, right? What a statement that, um, and you could imagine this, these guys, I just, I imagine these Pharisees and scribes holding stones, I don't know, maybe not, but I imagine them as already holding their stone ready. Maybe they even walked up to Jesus and handed him a stone, I don't know, and said, hey, you know, are we going to follow the law or not? I imagine him standing there and he says, you who's without sin cast the first stone. And we know, right, every one of those Pharisees, every one of those scribes, as holy as they acted to be, as holy as they tried to be, they knew they had sin. The Bible tells us one by one, I just picture it, I don't know, I picture them dropping their stones and walking away. I picture it quiet. I picture this lady there probably weeping, Jesus standing there, and these one by one, these guys just like, just that one sentence from Christ, shut them up. They walked away. As they walk away, we're left picturing Christ and this lady. Jesus, verse 10, looks at the woman and he says, where are those accusers? Where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And she looks around and she says, they're not here. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let me give you four applications from this passage. I uh, just hope, I hope four ways we can apply this, and I hope at least one of these will apply to every single one of us in this place this morning, and I, I know they will. Number one, this passage illustrates the harmony of Christ's justice and his mercy. We've already talked about the holiness of God and how Christ is just and God is just and all that Old Testament stuff points to the justness of God, the holiness of God. And, you know, this is a bad illustration, but when someone hurts you or when someone does something against me or you, it hurts, right? If someone offends us or talks about us or does anything that kind of to hurt us, it, it might make us angry or might make us sad or hurt. Imagine the heart of God and how it feels towards sin. That he is completely holy. And imagine how bad, I mean, how bad is sin? It's bad enough that the only way it could be paid for was with the death of the Son of God. The only way our sin is paid for is that way. And so God is just, and this passage shows, I think, the just, justness of God. And the, just of, the justice of Christ, but we also see mercy, don't we? We also see mercy. He's merciful to us. We this morning, every one of us, deserve the wrath of God, and yet in Christ we have salvation. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. If anyone standing there could have cast a stone, who could have cast a stone? Jesus? He could have. He was the only one there without sin. And the one who could have poured out his wrath on that lady if he wanted to, instead poured out mercy. You see the picture of the gospel in that? Christ is just and he is merciful. Every one of us, and we know it, we can amen it, every one of us, because of our sin, deserve condemnation. But in Christ, the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation. 
And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you need to be in Christ. Because in Him, there's no condemnation. No matter what this world does to us or how bad things might be for us here, our eternity is important to us. And do you want an eternity of peace and love and grace or eternal condemnation? In Christ we have the grace. So it illustrates a harmony, a union of justice and mercy. Number two, notice that in this passage, I think this is kind of obvious, but I see that, that sin is universal. That sin is universal. The qualification to cast the first stone, Jesus said, or to become the judge, is to be without sin. So in a sense here, Jesus is saying, y'all are not the right people to judge this lady. And so I was thinking about that, and as we're studying in context here, go back to chapter 7 and find verse 24, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where it says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And so when it, we know that when it comes to discerning things in life, there's a way in which Christians can and should judge other people and other things. We judge the tree by the fruit it bears, right? And so we judge with right judgment. We want to discern things. But when it comes to chapter 8, this type of judgment is referring to condemnation. And the only one who can condemn is that one who is sinless. So who is he who can condemn? Not us. Only the Lord is qualified. And the one who is qualified to pour out wrath, watch, the, one, the only one who is qualified to pour out wrath on us has chosen to pour out mercy. And we should worship him for that. And we should love him for that. I want to mention to you as I talk about sin being universal, we know this, we know this verse, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. But just because we know we all sin, that does not mean we should take sin lightly. Your sin should matter to you. And that calls us to repentance. Number three, notice that self-righteousness does not please God. Did these Pharisees please God or please Christ? Clearly not, right? They never did. But notice that self-righteousness does not please Him. I think there's a good example here in this chapter, and maybe maybe it would be helpful for some of us, but is there times in our lives where we might act a little too judgmentally toward others? Are there times where we might be a little too self-righteous? I confess to y'all Wednesday night, I know in my life there's been times where I thought I was better than someone else because I didn't, didn't do some of the things they did. And it can be tempting for us to have this pharisaical, hypocritical attitude toward other people's sin and not dealing with even our own sin. And we must remember how much God has forgiven of us and that we don't have the right to throw stones. None of us have the right to throw stones at others. Now, can we preach on sin? Yes. Can we confront a brother or a sister in Christ about sin? And lovingly, yes. But we're not called to cast stones. So Jesus forced these guys, these legalistic guys, and he exposes, doesn't he always expose their misuse of the law? 
They misuse, they turn and twist God's word, and he just continues to expose that. You would think they eventually got tired of it, and they did, right? These guys walk away. And someone once said this about, about that. They said, one writer said, The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get is the heartlessness of hypocr- and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Righteousness and justice should be based on a gracious spirit. I pray that in our church, we would always have a gracious spirit toward one another. And my experience has been that we do. I've been a part of churches. I've been around Christians who are not gracious toward others. And I'm thankful in our church I've seen gracious attitudes time and time again. And may God help us to continue to do that because we who have received grace should give grace. We who have received mercy should give mercy. In the story of the adulterous woman, when you first read it, who do you see who receives mercy? The woman, right? The Pharisees don't, there's no forgiveness for those who refuse to confess their sin. I was thinking about this, kind of apply this to us, but in my ministry, I have found oftentimes that regular church people, and not in our church, but in other past experiences, regular church people can sometimes be the hardest people to reach for Christ. They've been in church their whole life. They think they know it all. They know how to act in church, or they know some of the Bible. They can be the hardest people to reach. And to me, the easiest people to reach for Christ are those who are broken. I think maybe... Maybe for me, I was that broken one. <laughs> so maybe I relate to it more. But why is that the case? Because oftentimes the churched folks can easily become self-righteous and they can focus on themselves and what they know and what they do. Oftentimes the broken have nowhere to go, nowhere to look but to Christ. I think we should pray that God would make us more broken in some ways. That we might see more of Him and know more of Him and look to Him, depend on Him. Um, none of us want to be sick. None of us want to be hurting. None of us want to go through trials and tribulations. But there's sometimes those trials and tribulations and hurts are right where we need to be because then we're broken. And we look to the one who can put us back together. So I see here, self-righteous living does not please him. Number four, and this is our last point this morning. We need to leave our lives of sin. Jesus doesn't say it here in, in, the, in the way I'm going to say it, but you know, I want, I want to say to this woman, like, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more, Jesus said. Not because you're afraid that you're going to get dragged out and stoned, although that would be a reason not to do it. But it's that thing again about knowing now that you've seen me, Christ, show you grace. 
go and sin no more. Is there a better motivation for us to not sin than to think on what Christ has done for our sin? Jason shared this quote with us last week from Spurgeon, where he said, If Christ has died for me, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. And this whole story points to the idea of God is holy and we need to be holy as He is. As Christians, we should be pursuing lives of holiness and sanctification and we should be pursuing lives that please God. But if we seek to be holy without an experience of grace that God has done in us, a work of sovereign grace God has done to save us, if we seek Christianity and holiness and all these outward religious things without an inward work that God has done in us, we are on the path to hypocrisy. We're on the path, path to legalism. And we don't want to take that path. We want the path of grace. The mercy of Christ contained a challenge. Verse 11. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Church, we who have received mercy, how can we remain in sin? We mustn't. We know we're still going to sin. We know we're still going to fall short. But here's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. As a Christian, we should be fighting against the sin in our lives. John Piper said we need to make war against our sin. We treat sin like a friend or an acquaintance, don't we? It needs to be treated as an enemy. May God help us to do that. But as we close, this lady, I just picture her broken, hurting, embarrassed, right? Guilty, shameful. I imagine her there, seeing what had happened, wiping the tears from her eyes as the Pharisees walk off, looking up to Christ, and hearing this challenge that mercy gives. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I'll give you this final quote on this verse from an old writer named William Barclay. And he said this. He said, here we are face to face with the eternal choice. Jesus confronted the woman with a choice that day either to go back to her old ways or reach out to a new way with him. Let's pray.